it is, you know, it's a privilege for me to be here. Um, unfortunately, I don't have time to kind of tell my whole story, uh, but I've been here since 2008. Uh, the first time I ever walked into this auditorium was right over here. Of course, the seats are a little different now, but it was right over here back in 2008, and little did I know what I was walking into. Uh, I had no idea that 10 years later, you know, I'd be standing here, not just here, but here in this season of my life in what the Lord's doing. So one of the things that I've heard consistently about this church, and I can say to you that God uses this place as a turning point for people. He really, really does. So no matter where you are in your life today, no matter what's going on in your life, good, bad, or indifferent, God can turn your life around. It can be a turning point for you. And you can look back 10 years from now to this point and go, you know what, wow, look what God took me out of or took me through or turned me into 10 years in the making. You know, a lot of times we, we, we look at our lives now and go, wow, I wish that God had done this 10 years ago. But here's the thing, in God's economy, it is 10 years ago for him. He's 10 years ahead of you saying, right now, I want you to do these things so in 10 years you can say, look what God's done in the last 10 years or five years or whatever it is that's going on. And I want to take that idea and expand it out corporately, as far as the church in general. A couple weeks ago, Pastor mentioned this, I think it was a Wednesday night, or it may have been Sunday, that we had the opportunity to be on a a phone call with uh, Pastor James Robinson. And he was sharing some things from his heart with us, some of the things that just, you know, as far as the pastoral level, but also on a general level as far as the church. And one of the things he mentioned in that phone call was his earnest belief that we are on the verge of the greatest revival the world has ever seen. That everything up to this point has been preparation for this. And, and I believe that. I believe that with all my heart. I've not, I'm not just heard that from uh, James Robinson. I've heard it from many different people on many different levels. So it's, it's not a mistake that it keeps coming back up and it keeps bubbling to the surface. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning is preparing for revival. A lot of times we don't have the opportunity to know it's coming, but I believe the Lord is telling us ahead of time, prepare yourselves. You know, when, when Joshua was about to lead Israel across the Jordan River. He said, prepare yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do great things among you. And I believe the Lord is telling us, through all these these people who have this sense that there's a revival coming, the Lord's saying, prepare yourself, for tomorrow I will do great things among you. But in that aspect of preparation, there's a responsibility that we have. You know, we just celebrated Thanksgiving And in that season of Thanksgiving, there's a time of preparation. No matter what you do, you know, whether you you go somewhere or people come to your house, you have this season of preparation where you prepare for the Thanksgiving celebration. 
that preparation could take weeks. It could take months. You know, if you've got relatives coming from across uh, the country or maybe from another country, you're beginning to prepare this months or weeks in advance. And in that preparation, you're preparing for people to show up, you're preparing for food, you're preparing for gifts, whatever it is that your family does in anticipation of the Thanksgiving meal, of the Thanksgiving Day celebration. Now, as you prepare those things, you don't, you know, you are not preparing in vain. You're not preparing with the thought, you know, this may or may not happen. I don't know. I'm not sure if these people are going to show. I'm not sure if Thanksgiving is actually going to happen. I know, without a doubt, it's going to happen, and they're going to show up. So I'm going to prepare in earnest with the hope that this is going to be fulfilled. And that's the type of preparation God wants from his people. God wants that type of preparation knowing that, yes, God is going to move. God is going to bring another revival. And a lot of times when we prepare for things that are in faith, we don't prepare as earnestly as we do for Thanksgiving or for Christmas or for a birthday party or for a vacation or whatever it is because there's this little bit of doubt in the back. Will God really move? Will God really change things? We get caught up in in what's going on in the world and we say, how in the world can God do anything? How can God really turn this thing around? How how is God going to do it? And we allow that doubt to temper our preparation. We have to be careful that our preparation is not based on our doubts, but it's based on the trustworthiness of God, because God is trustworthy. You know, during the Second Great Awakening, there were many, many churches at the very beginning of the awakening who resisted the movement. Charles Finney, one of the one of the leaders of the Second Great Awakening, was turned away from many, many churches because they resisted the movement. They didn't recognize what it was up front. They just thought it was some weird thing that was going on, another weird thing coming through the church. You know, we just got to stop it. Or we just need not participate. Now, some of those churches later came on board and they experienced the blessing of the Second Great Awakening, but there were some churches that never came on board and they missed the whole thing. We have to be careful in our preparation that we recognize what God is doing. In our normal calendar, we recognize that Thanksgiving is coming. You know, the leaves start turning. Well, they don't don't turn here. They just fall off in Texas. (laughs) But the, the weather starts to change. It goes from 100 to 90, you know. Things start changing. The calendar starts moving. School starts. All these different things begin to indicate to us Thanksgiving is coming. And now, of course, Christmas is coming. There's things in the spiritual world that we need to be aware of that indicate to us things are coming. You know, Pastor just did that whole series on Matthew 24, indicating the signs of the times and the things that are yet to come. Well, as we watch, and one of those things that I that I know is an indication that this is that there is a great revival coming, is we keep hearing this. You know, people like James Robinson 
are not going to say something like that unless they know without a doubt this is coming. And there's many others like that. And there's other signs, you know, things that pastor has been preaching. So with that in mind, what do we need to do in order to prepare? Because if you plan a Thanksgiving celebration and you wait to the day of Thanksgiving to actually prepare, it's probably not going to work out too well. You go to Albertsons or or Kroger or Walmart or whatever, you and 10 million other people are trying to get that one last loaf of bread, and it's just not going to work out. So you prepare in advance to make sure you're ready. So what are the things we need to do to prepare in advance to be ready for this coming revival? Well, there's three specific things that I believe we corporately and individually within that corporate setting need to do in order to prepare for this coming revival. And here are those three things. Number one, we have to be willing to take personal responsibility for our preparation. We have to take personal responsibility. Number two, we have to remember that people are not the enemy. And number three, we need to seek to serve the communities God has placed us in. So let's look at these three things. Number one, taking personal responsibility. One of the things that we're really good at in the church is preaching the truth of the word and telling people that they need to take personal responsibility for their lives or groups of people that they need to take personal responsibility for their lives. But oftentimes we're terrible at doing it ourselves. We're terrible at taking personal responsibility ourselves. We're great at telling other people or other groups of people, but when it comes to me and the person I'm looking at in the mirror, you know, I'll get back to you on that. We're just not as good. One of the things that God walked me through when when I came to this church about a year later was the Celebrate Recovery Program. I, I will forever be in debt for God using um, the Celebrate Recovery Program to create an environment where people could have an encounter with Jesus. Now, I was, already, I was already Christian, but I needed a deeper level of understanding what the gospel was all about and how it directly applied to the different areas of my life. And within the Celebrate Recovery Program, there are, it's a 12-step Christian-based program. Now, you know, when I say 12-step, first thing people talk, think about is drugs and alcohol. Yes, it does address drugs and alcohol. One of the things we talk about in Celebrate Recovery is the general hurts, habits, and hang-ups of life. Everybody has something. You know, it's like getting on an airplane. Everybody's got baggage. In life, everybody's got baggage. And we don't like unpacking our stuff. We just want to put it in the closet and just let it sit there. And, you know, God is a terrible house guest. You know, when you're a house guest, you you tend to hang out in the guest areas. Well, God doesn't like to do that. He likes to go rummage through the house and open all those suitcases and closets and the medicine cabinet. He'll go through everything, whether you want him to or not. But he's not doing it to be rude. He's doing it to bring you to a deeper level of understanding of who you are in him and who he is in you. And it's in that process of taking responsibility for your own stuff that you discover that who you've been is not who you're becoming. 
Your past is not the prophet of your future. Jesus is the prophet of your future. The only way you can understand who you're becoming is if you let go of who you've been. Here are the first three steps in the 12-step program. To me, these are foundational discipleship steps. They're not limited to celebrate recovery. Step number one, we admitted we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors and that our lives had become unmanageable. Every single one of us, to one degree or another, has unmanageable areas of our lives. Before we come to Jesus, we are totally out of control. We really are. And even after we've come to Jesus, until we turn our lives over to Jesus, fully, we're still out of control. Just because you pray a prayer, walk an aisle, sign a car to become a church member, doesn't mean your life's in order. It means you're on the path to getting your life in order, but it's not an instantaneous one and done deal. Now, there are some people that you say, oh yeah, you know, I've heard these stories of people who they, they, they come to know the Lord and the God immediately transforms their life. Yes, but it's in one area. I've never met somebody whose entire life was immediately transformed and everything was set in place in that one instance. They may be delivered from drugs or alcohol or, or whatever it is, In that area, I guarantee you, the things they're not talking about, they're still working through. In my years in Celebrate Recovery, again, I've never met anybody. Yes, you know, some of them have been miraculously delivered. Man, I I got on my knees, I asked the Lord to, to deliver me, and I've been delivered from whatever it is. But there's other stuff they're still delivering, they need deliverance from. They still need to walk out of, and we all have stuff. So don't let the enemy lie to you that just because you have stuff, you're just not good enough. Because that is a lie, because everybody's got stuff. And we all need to walk out of that. And in that step one, we admitted we were powerless. Step one is a step of humility. In order for us to experience the transforming power of the gospel, we have to humble ourselves. You know, we talk about that with other people. You need to humble yourself, you know, and we, we quote the verse, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and he'll lift you up. But we need to preach that to ourselves. You, looking at yourself in the mirror, you, mister, you need to humble yourself. You need to be telling yourself that every single day. I need to be telling that myself every single day. Step number two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And this is Trust. This is the crux. This is the core of Christianity. Whenever somebody comes up to me, now, you know, now that I've been on staff here for, this is the end of my sixth year on staff, you know, people come up and say, hey, I'm struggling with this, or I'm dealing with that, or I've got this going on in my life. And I'll ask them questions, you know, I've, I've talked about this before. One of the questions I ask is, how much time do you spend in the Word? You know, I don't have time to go into that today. But some of the other questions I ask are designed to get to the root of the issue. And I'm telling you, in every single case, the root of the issue is I just don't trust God. That's what it boils down to. I just don't trust God. Because if you don't trust God, then you're going to try and hold on to what power you think you have. 
and you're going to try and fix stuff. You're going to make decisions rather than allowing God to make decisions. So if you're in a position in your life where things aren't going right, or you, you know you're making decisions you shouldn't, there's a trust issue going on there. So number one in, the three, in the three, these three steps is you've got to humble yourself, then you have to trust God, and then finally, step three, we made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God, and that's obedience. Humility, trust, obedience. That is the process of discipleship. If we're going to see a revival in this country, we, ourselves, me, and you have to be walking out what we want to see in other people. We cannot preach a message we are not willing to walk out ourselves. The whole aspect of the, of, of the, the life of Jesus And in those four Gospels, we see all the stories. The one thing he called out repeatedly was hypocrisy, was those preaching a message they themselves were not willing to live. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. That's not what I'm talking about. If you're working in that direction, God is 100% behind you. He's walking with you, and he's getting you to that place. What I'm talking about is willful disobedience, is not being willing to allow God to transform your life. That's what I'm talking about. So these three steps, humility, trust, and obedience, are part of taking personal responsibility. As you take that personal responsibility, constantly check yourself. Am I humbling myself? Am I trusting God? And am I obeying what the Lord has revealed to me up to this point? In the same context with that is submitting to authority. We have to learn to submit to authority in the context of taking personal responsibility because we're all under authority. One of the things I learned as a Fort Worth police officer is what does it mean to operate under authority? The authority I had as a police officer was not mine. It was the Fort Worth Police Department's. They gave it to me, but it came with boundaries. I could not exercise my authority as a police officer any way I wanted to. You know, if I was at... Walmart, somebody cuts me off in, in the checkout line, I couldn't arrest them because I didn't like it. I didn't have that authority because it wasn't mine. It was the four police departments. And the authority we have as believers is not our authority. It's Jesus's authority. Before the Great Commission was the great announcement. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, meaning Jesus. Jesus said that. Then he gave the Great Commission. The only reason the Great Commission works is because Jesus has all authority and he confers that onto us, but it's not our authority, it's his. And we cannot use it in any way we see fit. Here's the thing about authority and submitting to authority in the kingdom. God administers his authority through man. That's the part we don't like. Oh, I'll submit to God, but I'm not going to submit to this guy or woman or whatever. When I say man, I'm not talking about male. I'm talking about human beings. God administers his authority through other men and women. And God will place us under their authority. And we have to submit to them. And, of course, the the first thing people come up with is, well, what if they ask me to do something that's not biblical? Okay, what are you talking about? Give me an example. 
And nine times out of ten, they're like, well, you know, hypothetically speaking, well, hypothetically speaking, if you submitted to God's authority, things might be going better. One of the things I learned as a police officer is when you're testifying in court, a judge will not allow a hypothetical. You cannot witness according to a hypothetical. We need to take that up in the church. Let's drop all the hypothetical and let's deal with reality. Because God does not deal in hypotheticals. He only deals in reality. Paul writes this in Romans 13, 12, one and, or sorry, uh, Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who, are, who resist will bring judgment on themselves. There are countless Christians who have brought judgment upon themselves because they refuse to submit the, to the authority God has placed them under. And I'm not just talking about in the church. I'll talk about that here in a second. But that means at work. Your boss. God has placed you under their authority. I don't care if you like them or not. When I was at the police department, I worked for some pretty crazy people. I, didn't, I personally didn't think they should have been in power. But nobody asked me. God didn't say, hey, I'm going to put you under this person's authority. What do you think? He, he left off that second part and he said, I'm putting you under this person's authority. And here's the thing. If I cannot submit to human authority, I cannot submit to God's authority. It's impossible because God administers his authority through human beings. So when I was at work, part of my training, not just police training, but my own personal character training was God placing me under people that I didn't like, that made me do stuff that I didn't like. But it was not illegal, it was not immoral, and it was not unethical, so I had to do it. Because in the police department, you can be fired for insubordination. And in the kingdom, you can be fired for insubordination. We just don't feel it as much. We don't realize what it is. And bringing that in the context of the church, here's the thing. I love this verse. Pastor quotes this all the time. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the kingdom of their God. The reason most Christians don't flourish is because they are not planted in their church. The church is not for your benefit alone. It is for the advancement of the kingdom. God specifically places you in a church for a reason. It's not just to show up on Sunday or Wednesday night. It's to prepare you. The church is like like the police academy. It prepares you for what your destiny is to be. And a lot of Christians cut themselves off from their destiny by not submitting to being a part of their local church. Well, I don't like, you know, I like the preacher what he says, but I don't like being under that authority. Well, you're not going to go anywhere. I've never met anybody who walked into their kingdom destiny who did not do it through the church. Never met them because they don't exist. The church is the doorway to destiny. If you're wondering what your kingdom destiny is, get involved in the local church. If this is not it, find out where it is because God specifically has a place for you in a local church. He specifically places you there. That's a whole other message. 
He specifically places you there for a reason. And that's part of taking your personal responsibility. Humbling yourself, trusting God, obeying him in authority and in the church. In preparing you for revival. Because here's the thing. When God brings this revival, where's he going to send all the people? He's going to send them to the church. And if the church is not ready... What are they going to end up doing? Nothing. It's not going to stick. So God has to prepare the church first. Part of that preparation is you and me taking our personal responsibility. So that's number one, taking personal responsibility. Number two, we, we have to remember that people are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. People and groups of people Cultures are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. And too often we get distracted and we focus our our attention on the individual rather than the enemy behind the individual. Now, does that mean the, the person is doing everything right? Nope. Not at all. But that does not justify us demonizing individuals. And we do it all the time. You know, Jesus said to the church that you are to be gentle as doves and wise as serpents. And unfortunately, we've, we've become dyslexic with that, and we've become gentle as serpents and wise as doves. A serpent is not gentle, and a dove is not wise. We've seen them fly into a window. And we do, we're flying into windows all over the place, and then we're attacking each other, and we're attacking people. That is not the biblical prescription that God has placed for the church. There is only one enemy. When, when God led Joshua and the Israelites across the Jordan River to, to Jericho, the very first battle, their first battle was a key component in God teaching them how he was going to get them to take the entire promised land. So the, the components... The principles in this battle are key. So they crossed the Jordan River. And, you know, as it says about Jericho in, in chapter 6, that Jericho was a big walled city and that the, 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 the city had fortified the walls because of Israel. Now, the common way to take a city was to set up a siege mount and to eventually get that wall to come down or, or starve them out, and it was a long process. It was, to, it was to do things in the natural. But God told them not to do that. God said, I want you to march around the city seven times for seven days. And on the last day, shout and blow the trumpets. Here's the thing. What, we, what God was teaching them was that the battle must first ta- take place in the spirit before it manifests in the natural. Everything is spiritual. If you've got a problem in the natural, it's got a spiritual root. The only way you overcome problems in the natural is by overcoming them in the spirit. And the way that Israel was taught to overcome or to take Jericho was to attack it spiritually first. Because when they won in the spirit, the walls just fell down. Why? Because the walls in the spirit had fallen down. It says of Jericho that they, they fortified the walls because of Israel. It was a distraction. 
And it's the same thing the enemy does today. The enemy will get you to focus on the individual and say, this person or this group of people are the enemy. They are not. God will, I mean, the enemy will fortify them to get you to focus on them and to fight against them. Because if you're fighting against them, you're not fighting against him. And because we have the authority of Jesus, the enemy knows he cannot win against us if we will fight against him. But we end up fighting against people, and we try and knock down the walls in our own strength, and it ain't working. You want to know why the gospel's not being spread in this country as, as it should? Is because we're fighting people instead of the enemy. If we will fight the enemy, the walls will fall down and the gospel will spread. That's what needs to happen. Because the kingdom of God is manifest on earth through the church, Ephesians 3.10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. To whom? The world? No. To the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. God uses the church to manifest his wisdom to the enemy. Because he knows when the enemy is defeated, it manifests in victory in the natural. It has to take place in the spiritual first. Now, there's a, there's a caveat here. We have to be very careful. One of the things that, again, you know, this kind of ties back into personal responsibility. One of the things we have to be careful is that we're not praying for our comfort more than we're praying for change. Here's what I mean. You know, over the last 10 years or so, we've seen huge prayer movements rise up in this country because people just didn't like the way things were going. So these huge prayer movements came asking God to change things and to change things, and things changed. And now the question is, were, were we praying because we wanted things to change, or were we praying because we wanted to be comfortable again? Are we praying for ourselves because I want to be comfortable so I don't feel the pressure? Or am I praying because I really want to see the kingdom of God manifest in, in this country? The answer to that question will be what we do for the next few years while things are a little bit more comfortable. When Israel was, after they took the promised land, we see this cycle in the book of Judges of faithfulness, and disobedience, faithfulness and disobedience. When things got comfortable, they disobeyed because they were more interested in their comfort than they were in change. We cannot fall into that trap because at some point, God eventually said, that's it. And he allowed other nations to take them over. The only way we can lose is if we get so self-centered that we're more interested in our comfort than we are in the kingdom. Because at some point, God may say, okay, that's it. You want your comfort? Well, well, I'm taking that away too. The only way we can lose is if God takes away his protection. Because the enemy has no power over us. We have to be praying for change and we have to be willing to keep using the opportunities God has for his kingdom, not for our benefit. Amen. 
There's a big, big difference. We have to be very careful. So number one is taking personal responsibility. Number two is remembering that people are not the enemy. And then finally, number three, we have to seek to serve the community God has placed us in. We serve the community. They don't serve us. We are here for them. They are not here for us. And it is not us versus them. It is us for them, for without us, they have no hope. Because God made it that way. It's not that we're so important, it's because that was God's plan A. God's plan A is to advance the kingdom through his people, and there is no plan B. So if we don't do it, ain't gonna get done. We have to take that responsibility to take it to the community. You know, it says of Jesus that he was a friend of sinners. And, you know, in the church today, we are afraid of being called a friend of sinners. We love to judge sinners, and we love to call them out, but we're no longer considered friends of sinners. In fact, we, we deride people in the church who are friends to sinners because we think that to be a friend to a sinner, you have to be a sinner. Well, if that's true, then Jesus was a sinner because he was called a friend of sinners without being a sinner. Because if he's a sinner, we all, we just might as well go home because this whole thing is a lie. Not only did Jesus give us the message, he gave us the method by which we advanced that message. And that's by becoming friends of sinners. You can be a friend of a sinner without becoming a sinner. You do that through compassion. Compassion. Compassion and relationship are are the antidote to overcoming the objections to the gospel. You cannot intellectually talk somebody into the kingdom. It doesn't work. Because the kingdom is not an intellectual pursuit. It is a spiritual reality. The number one thing that overcomes objection is compassion. Why was Jesus called a friend of sinners? Because he was compassionate towards them. When, When the woman caught in adultery was thrown at his feet, he was not more interested in making sure she conformed with the law than he was in her being transformed by his love. Does that mean the law is not important? Nope. The purpose of the law is not to beat somebody over the head. The purpose of the law is to say, here's the standard, here is where you are, let me help you get here. Because if you are transformed, this is the type of person you become. It's not, you don't just not do it, you become the type of person who just doesn't want to do it. The law is not some arbitrary standard that God's trying to force people into. It's a plumb line that says, hey, your life is crooked. Let me help you transform it into something straight. God is more interested in the person than he is in the conformity. God is not interested in people conforming to a law. He is interested in transforming them into people who look like the law. That's what God is after. And we have to be very careful when we go into a community that we're not just trying to arbitrarily get them to follow the law. We have to go in and 
share with them how much God loves them by compassion and relationship. This is the foundation of evangelism. Evangelism and discipleship are built on compassion and relationship. There is a place and time for, you know, handing out a track or doing a one-hit wonder type thing, but in a larger context, you have to enter into a relationship because the gospel's not about putting people in heaven. The gospel's about restoring the relationship with God that God wanted to have with them from the beginning. And we model that through compassion. So if we want to transform a community, we have to go out into that community through compassion. So here are our three ways to prepare for revival. Number one, take personal responsibility. Number two, remember, people are not the enemy. And number three, we have to seek to serve the community God has placed this in through compassion and relationship. As I mentioned at the beginning, many churches during the Second Great Awakening resisted because they weren't prepared. They missed it. Now, there were many churches that came on later, and there were some that never came on at all because they weren't prepared. We know there's a great awakening coming. In fact, I'm convinced that if those who are involved in the first and second and the third great awakenings could look ahead to us and read a book about us, they would be jealous of us. Going, man, I wish I could have lived at that time because look how great that revival is compared to theirs. The greatest revival we've ever seen is yet to come. And we have to be prepared for it because if we're not, we will be like those churches in the second great awakening, we'll miss it. We will miss it. So as I, as I close, here's, here's what I want to know. Are you willing to prepare? Are you willing to take personal responsibility? Are you willing to stop looking at people as the enemy? Are you willing to reach out to the community God has placed you in through compassion and relationship. Now listen to me. God, God takes this seriously. And he takes commitment seriously. If you are willing to do that, I want you to stand up. So let us be witnesses against ourselves today that we have made a commitment that we we will prepare for revival. That we will not be a church that misses the very beginning and we will be there at the precipice of this revival and we'll be willing to be the tangible demonstration of the kingdom in this community. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, first of all, we thank you just for who you are. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this opportunity to be prepared for what you're about to do. And Lord, we do. We admit today that we believe this is the greatest revival yet to come. And Lord, I just pray right now that that you would prepare us. Lord, you would show us where we need to take personal responsibility. Lord, you would show us where we need to let go of the lie that other people in our lives are the enemy. And Lord, you would show us ways where we can reach out 
and serve our community through compassion and relationship. So Lord, today you've seen our commitment. You've seen us as we've stood and we've made a commitment before you. And Lord, today I pray that you would give us the wisdom, guidance, and direction, the strength to follow through on this commitment. And Lord, we look forward in anticipation. Lord, just like for Thanksgiving, Lord, we cannot wait to see you move. We cannot wait to see this next great revival. But we will be prepared. We will be ready. And Lord, I pray that no person, no entity, no organization, nothing gets glory for it but you. That the name of Jesus would be lifted high and that your name would be declared throughout all the earth as the one true living God manifest in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand this morning.